the, the orders are any heads come over the over the top, pop them off. What he done? He give us all instructions to uh, dynamite that bridge if the if the wall's coming down and the Japs are rolling down the road with their tanks and stuff. There'd be no bridge, so they couldn't cross the river. The death rate from even our group is forty to fifty percent. Uh, the destruction in Hiroshima is unbelievable. You'd have to see it. All, all, all we've got these days is pictures, but to be there is something else. Is there something that stuck, stayed with you? <laughs> Never leave you. Mm. <laughs> Everybody loses in a war. Everybody. Just an utter waste. The following conversation is one I had with a man named Alan Hodge. Now, I thought it'd be appropriate if I gave a little bit of context and background as to why it was such a privilege for me to speak with Alan. Alan was born in 1927, and he grew up in Australia during the Depression years. He was a cadet during World War II, and shortly after the end of the war, he was sent to Japan as part of the BCOF, the British Commonwealth Occupation Force. This force totaled 45,000 men from Britain, India, New Zealand, and Australia. Uh, the Australian contingent represented 30% of the force, and these guys were responsible for the military occupation and supervision of the demilitarization and disposal of the remnants of Japan's war-making capacity. At its peak, the Australians and themselves were responsible for over 20 million Japanese civilians and almost 60,000 square kilometres of the country. Now, Alan was stationed just outside the city of Hiroshima um, for quite some time. And just so we understand the significance of this, the whole Japanese surrender in September of 1945 was due to the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now, this consisted of two bombs, two atomic bombs, Bombs, one for Hiroshima and one for Nagasaki, and these atomic bombs caused devastation unlike anything seen before. The act of surrender was only 20 days afterwards, and Alan, along with other members that served, saw the destruction with their own eyes. Whole cities flattened. And so when the opportunity came for me to speak with Alan and he was willing to talk to me, um, yeah, what a privilege. These opportunities don't come every day and what an honour it was for me to speak with a man that was a part of such a pivotal point in history. What a privilege. Anyway, here's a conversation with Alan and for those that uh, are a fan of history and for those who maybe don't know so much, to both alike, I... I hope you uh, appreciate this conversation as much as I did. Alan, do you mind just making some noise? I can see if your microphone is working. Make some noise? What sort of noise? <laughs> that sort of noise. That's perfect. <laughs> I find myself incredibly fortunate to be sitting uh, in front of uh, a man that was part of the BCOF, the British Commonwealth Occupation Force in Japan, and... Um, it's a little overwhelming for a young man that uh, enjoys military history and history itself. Um, it's a really big privilege. So thank you for uh, sitting here with me today and taking the time to chat with a, 
a youngin that knows close to nothing about anything. I'd like to start with uh, with your childhood, um, if you don't mind, and just what it was like growing up in the 30s here in Australia. Yeah, pretty tough, of course. I grew up in the Depression years where nobody had anything, and if you did have anything, you'd share it with your neighbour, <laughs> which is a little bit different today. But uh, times were hard, extremely hard. I mean, my father was a share farmer, and I remember once we had no money to pay the bills and the storekeeper, he said, I'll look after you, Bill. I'll, I'll bring you all the necessaries, your bread, your butter and all that for three months, but I can't last longer than three months. Now, that was when we had a drought for two years and production was down to nothing and if we didn't have our backyard garden and the local storekeeper, I don't think I'd be here today because we were really on poor street. Oh, wow. So everyone sort of pulled in together and tried to help out as much as yeah, possible? Yeah, whatever you had in your garden, the neighbour, he'd come down and give us a couple of watermelons and we'd give him some sweet potatoes and all that sort of thing. That's how you existed in those days. Nobody had anything and you really didn't know. If somebody rolled up in a Rolls Royce, you'd say, I don't want that thing. How am I going to learn to drive it? Not like today where everyone's fighting over toilet paper, is it? <laughs> what a mess. Yeah, what a different world it is today. So you sort of, you learn to appreciate the little things of life. Yeah. I wasn't brought up in a Christian way, uh, although my mother, uh, yeah, she was a, a really wonderful woman. She was an English woman. She migrated here when she was only three years old. But she still talked like a pommy sometime, you know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, well, you know, they say if you haven't got any religion, you don't get to heaven. Well, I don't believe that because uh, my mother was such a wonderful woman with all the kids, five kids to look after and no income. I don't really don't know, look back and think, how did we exist in those days, you know? Mm. Sometimes it's... Uh, times like that, those hard times that that pull the community and people together. It's we haven't experienced something like that for a long time now. No, at least not the younger folk like myself. No, it's it's an easy life. You hear them fighting over the wage. Oh, we should get another few dollars for this and a few dollars to that. Uh, we're not doing enough. Good grief! Why don't they have people appreciate what they've got? Mm. Yeah. Who were some of your um, role models growing up? Uh, obviously, it sounds like your mother was one of them. Oh, yeah, mother number one half the time. Dad was a bit hard. We always thought he was a bit hard on mum, but that was the tradition in those days. He chopped the woods, we carried it inside, mum cooked the dinner and we sat down and ate it and that was it. Dad, that was it. Dad never washed up or wiped up or anything like that. People had their set things to do, and it was pretty, uh, pretty tough life, I think, comparison today. I mean, uh, <laughs> people in those days where I don't know what the right word is, stoic, maybe they weren't sort of was wasn't the right thing to show love to a person in public. You know, uh, my poor old mum, she was a slave, but I never. Dad never ever said anything really nice to her, you know. Just say, hey, grow up. Uh, today it's 
Everything's different. Totally. Yeah. Even in the home, there was this stoic culture? Oh, yeah. Well, Mum done the cooking, made the, made the beds, and Dad chopped the wood, and that was about it, you know. Milk the cows. Milk the cows, and as they used to say, slop the hogs. We always had a pig pen down the back and all the rubbish went down there for the pigs to eat. What a disgrace. When, when do you think that changed? When do you think people started to become more affectionate and showing their emotions more, wearing them on their sleeves? Oh, I think with more freedom, probably the word I can think of, people sort of weren't sort of bound up too, too close and too tight with one another, you know. Uh, there wasn't the scandal about in those days. Well, there's always been scandal about, but not like it is today. People those days who look down on it and say, oh, what a terrible sort of a person they are. But today, somebody runs off with someone else's wife and they don't seem to mind about it anymore. <laughs> Times have definitely changed. What are some of the... When you think of when you grow up, and there was a hardship, the stoic culture... Are there other things that stick out to you that are a stark contrast from how we live and see things today? And well, those days families were very close. I mean, I was born here in this area in Alstonville, and Auntie Nell lived there, and Uncle Charlie lived there, all within ten minutes walking, or a bike ride for five minutes away somewhere. Families were so close and knit. But today, they're all over the place. Well, i got a daughter who lives down on Victoria border and and son lives up at Moolambar. They're all fragmented and move away from one another. There doesn't seem to be, well, cohesion, I suppose, it would be the word when you get together, but they don't get together enough. Mm. People who, you know, it's a fast world. It's not, not as glued together as yeah. it once was, perhaps. Yeah. Mm. So growing up, uh, from what I remember um, speaking to you last, you were in the Air Force Cadets, is that correct, as a teenager? Yeah, yeah, well, uh, the war it was the last year of the war, 46, 47, 46, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'd finished two years in the cadets and I was due to, to be transferred, as a couple of mates were, straight into the Air Force. As you finished your term in the t cadets, you were expected to, but they didn't hold a gun at your head, but everybody did go into the Air Force. But more or less the same month as the war finished, was I finished my two years. So I didn't do much then. I just sort of went back and helped on the farm. We were living out the Channon. And then we went to live in, on a banana plantation at Mullumbimby and I didn't do anything for about a year. And then I got a letter from Airboard, so, uh, Air, um, Airboard headquarters in Melbourne saying, seeing that I was a cadet, we're, we're short of people to join the Air Force. And I thought, well, huh, good chance to get away and see the world, get away from all the hard slog in the banana plantation. So... Dad didn't mind, so those days, if you're under 21, your parents had to sign the document, which he did, and then uh, oh, I went, I'd done my uh, tra basic training at, um, 
where's Lou? Um, Wagga, Wagga. And then I was posted to various places around Sydney and uh, 86 Transport Wing. That was a bit of a holiday. Used to get lots of flights in the old planes. Just the boss would say, uh, we're not busy if you want to go for a flight. And, oh, wow, this will be me. So, uh, yeah, fly to, fly to Brisbane on leave and all that. It was a new world for me. And then I had the opportunity to go to Japan and sign up there. I went to Japan for a year and a half in the Air Force. When you were um, just in the cadets as a teenager, that was while the war was going on? Yeah, the last two years of the war. So when, at the time during the war, I want to get to Japan, but um, what was the perception of the Aussies during the time while World War Two was going on, how did how did the Australians see was Nazi Germany an intimidating force, or was there a lot of publicity about the war? Was it something that seemed to be um, uh, on the other side of the world at that time? I know Australia served in Papua and and against the Japs, but how did Australians feel? Was there tension? Uh, what was it like while the Second World War was...? Yeah, well, it was a very great shortage of manpower because that was the age group that they wanted. As soon as you was 18, you was expected to go and fight for your country. Uh, mainly, we seemed to be concerned with the Pacific War, although a lot of our blokes early in the peace over to Europe and in that area, but not many. We came into the war when uh, with Japan in, and uh, up through the islands and that sort of thing, uh, and it was pretty... That was the most predominant part of the set, situation was the Pacific War. I know, knew lots of chaps that went away in New Guinea and up there and through the jungles and now a few that never came back and... Uh, that was the main concern of the public in those days, the Pacific War. Like, <laughs> brings back a memory. I was about oh, 15, I think, and every uh, in the country everyone had a, a warden, like, uh, say, about every 25 kilometres around there'd be a warden for that area. Well, our neighbour was the warden. We lived at Mearsham Vale on a property down there and our neighbour was the warden and he was supposed to uh, go around and talk to people, uh, uh, you know, cover your blinds of a night time, you're not allowed to have blinds, you're not allowed to have your windows up, you're not allowed to use torches. If you had a little old kerosene lamp to go to the toilet down the backyard, that was about it. Is that so in case the Japanese yeah. could see targets from the air? Yeah, it was pretty close, they didn't really know. But even when I lived there in Mission Vale, uh, I remember one Sunday they had a, an organisation called Volunteer Defence Defence Corps, uh, run by the military. And this military officer came down and lectured all the locals uh, between our house and the school. There was a bridge across a major creek at the bottom of the hill, and 
what he done. He give us all instructions to uh, dynamite that bridge if the if the war's coming down and the Japs are rolling down the road with their tanks and stuff. There'd be no bridge, so they couldn't cross the river. So we had all that sort of training where the, the local farmers uh, they weren't issued with the dynamite sticks, but they were told how to use them. And if it came to that, that was the lo what the local people had to do: slow the progress of the Japanese coming down the coast. We thought it was a bit of a joke, but it wasn't really, because uh, people don't know. I mean, the, one of the things comes to my mind, uh, off the western coast, uh, there was reports during certain times of Japanese submarines off Western Australia, and people said, nah, that's crazy. They couldn't do that. It's too far from their homeland. They wouldn't have enough petrol for diesel for their engines and stuff. But little that they knew, it's only come out in the last couple of years, where early in the peace they sent Japanese ships down off the West Australian coast and nobody cared about them. Oh, that's only an old Jap tourist boat, blah, blah. But they went into the beaches and they dug tunnels and they stored ammunition and fuel and bulldozed the sand back over again so you didn't know it was there. The Japs knew, but because the Western Australian coast in those days, you drive a 1,000 kilometres, you never wouldn't even see a blackfella. So it was wide open for the Japanese to mine all those places and bring their supplies and bury them. Oh, I never knew. I, I never... Wow. <laughs> no, the public weren't told. That's only come out in a few recent years ago. So there was there were a few then that thought uh, the, the Japs will never get here. It's just mandatory drills sort of. Uh, yeah. But it, it's good to hear that the, the government and the, it got the citizens ready. Yeah. Um, I know that there was talk of leaving Queensland and retreating into New South Wales at one point, um, if yeah. it got to that point. Um, so what was what was the training like when you were a cadet? You were a teenager, all the young men would have to do um, some training, is that correct? Yeah, rifle training mainly. All right. We even had to... Uh we done <laughs> dummy training with bayonets. You had to fix your bayonet and do a dummy damage, you know. A bit, bit gruesome, that part, but I'm glad I never had to do it. <laughs> but I don't think I'd have the courage to do it anyway. But you're trained to do it, you know, self-defence and that sort of stuff. What rifles were you using at the oh, time? Standard 303. Lee Enfield? No. I don't think I were invented in those days. These 303s... They had a kick like a mule, you know. We used to do rifle training at the Tuncester Range in Lismore. The old range is still there. If you go out of Lismore a couple of miles up on the left, you can still see it's up in the eye now. I could go straight to it. We used to... Everyone had to use a rifle, mm, mm. train how to use it, how to load it, how to look after it. Even when I was in pan over there on duty, we used to sleep and the rifles were always at the end of the bed. But we didn't have the ammunition because the ammunition would be tied up somewhere because some of the boys would get on the star on the sake and start shooting themselves. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a, that was a major precaution. <laughs> yeah. Out of uh, shooting themselves out of uh, just drunken stupor or out yeah, of uh, or um, emotional instability? A bit of each. A bit of each. <laughs> um, it's a, a bit of a rich mixture. <laughs> we um, 
I have, my father and I, we have an old uh, 303 dated to 1904. And an old lady out west gave to us when her husband died. And uh, you're right, it does kick like a mule, and, uh, but beautiful rifles. It yeah. still hold up very well. The original wood um, shoots very well. Yeah, well, in the cadets, we all had to learn rifle shooting, marching and other subjects like Morse code and all that kind of stuff. But the funny part about some of the boys, you know, they're only, only more or less kids. Uh, at 16, spindly types, we used to call them. They'd be sitting up there in the mound and you'd have to say, no, you're wrong, your position. We were the senior boys. You had to move around a little bit. Why? Well, because if you fired the gun in that position, you'd blow your shoulder off. So you got to move around a little bit. So well, the, you can imagine a young fellow holding a rifle with, and when he fires it, the gun shoots back automatically about six inches. Where goes your shoulder? If it was in the road and the kids were, oh, yeah, bruises. And all. <laughs> but what we used to do with safety, we'd take our hats off and jam it in there and then put the rifle butt against his shoulder oh, right. and impact it a little bit softer. But, oh, boy, I've seen some some kids, you know, in tears with a busted shoulder after they fire a 303 because the kickback, we all had to do rifle shooting and training, so part of it, you know. Mm. So um, coming to the end of the war... Were you hoping, um, just as a cadet, were you hoping to serve? Were you hoping to go overseas when you were just a cadet? Or, um, yeah, how, how did you feel at the time? Well, life was pretty dull on the farm and if you wanted a bit of excitement, you had to, had to get in amongst it sort of thing. Yeah. That's, that we always thought, oh, good opportunity. You know, you don't have to worry about where your next meal's coming from. They issue with all these gears. Uh, your rifles, your bayonets and everything because they had to be maintained because every day was rifle inspection, your rifle's on a rack and the orderly officer would come down and make sure that your bed's made and look down the bore of your rifle. Oh, there's a bit of grit there. We'll have to send this boy, yeah, we'll put his name. What's this soldier's name? So forth. And you'd be up for trouble there, wouldn't you? Yeah, OK. A little bit of stuff in the, in the bore of the rifle. You had to, you know, everything had to be spick and span. Discipline was pretty tight. Do you now the the atomic bombs were dropped? The first one, Hiroshima, was in August of '45, and uh, 20 days later was um, Nagasaki. Do you remember hearing about it on the radio, perhaps, when it happened? Not much. We we only had a, an old radio, and when I lived in the bush, and uh, we didn't hear much about it. We just you know, what people said, a little bit of news here and there, but there was no daily newspapers. Where we lived up in the sticks at Mullumbimby, <laughs> nothing up there. Uh, you didn't didn't get much information about anything, but, they, you know, they said a bomb was dropped. Well, we thought a bomb's a bomb, but mm. we didn't really know the, the distancing or anything about it. So um, when you were called to be part of the British Commonwealth Occupation Force to go to Japan, you weren't, um, you weren't anticipating seeing the fallout of an atomic bomb? No, well, the first time I walked into Hiroshima, our base was Iwa Kuni. It's about <coughs> oh, three-quarters of an hour drive south of the epicentre of the bomb. Uh, there was no visible damage that far away except a bit of fallout stuff here and there. 
But when you get into uh, into Hiroshima and see that, just mind-boggling. You look for miles and miles, you know. There's nothing standing. Whatever was standing, I think the only building, to my knowledge, uh, is the Diet building. Well, the Diet is a Japanese word for uh, what we'd call Parliament House. Okay. They call it the Diet and still standing probably the strongest building they ever built in Japan. Uh, but uh, the damage was unbelievable, you know. Nothing higher than a couple of feet. and You could walk and see where the streets were because, you know, a track here and a track there, but everything's melted, all glass and stuff. And I often think I should have brought back some momentum because lots of blokes did, but there's the fear. <laughs> you pick up something there, it's radioactive. To yeah. what extent, you wouldn't know unless you had a Gigi counter to find out, you know... It's pretty risky business. I mean, the the death rate from even our group is forty to fifty percent. The fellows that were up there many years ago died. Some died within two or three years. And I belonged to an organisation for about forty years. And oh, every time you get the mail, oh, this one's passed away, and we've lost so many here and that. Actually, there was. I was looking for it this morning. Somewhere here I've got a, a sheet of paper with the present-day people who are alive, and I think it's a group of Air Force guys, less than 30, Army about three and no Navy. We were the only survivors and just a handful of us left. And I think um, when I was just doing a bit of research, I think there was... Uh uh, was that eighteen thousand from the air force alone? Something like that. Something maximum like that. capacity. Yeah. yeah. So out of that, only what a dozen, fifteen blokes from the air force left. Yeah. Well, see, they were all older blokes than me because yeah. I was only nineteen, I think, when I went up there. But a lot of them were affected by the radioactive material yeah, and the fallout right. zone. And yeah. Did, were you informed about this, or did they speak about? Not the... really. No. Okay. I. I th <laughs> I think uh, <clears throat> the POMs were in charge of the, all the atomic arrangements and so forth and they, uh, <laughs> the POMs didn't want to tell you anything and the Yanks didn't want you to know anything. You know, nobody, oh, don't mention that word. No, it was sort of hush-hush. But uh, no, we were never told anything about that sort of thing. Do, but, you, um, do you remember the, the thoughts or the feelings that when you first saw the actual devastation that the, the just the magnitude of the bomb and what it resulted do you remember what you thought or what impression that had on you when you saw the destruction yeah the first time i went to hiroshima was i just one or two buildings here and there left but completely gutted of course and no roofs some of them were leaning at an angle like that but you could walk for miles there and everything is just melted you wouldn't find anything bigger than every now and then there'd be a, a brick fireplace and you'd find the bricks all melted and in a heap there it's just dust and stuff uh they never ever told us much only well <laughs> yeah they didn't want us to know and didn't want us to scare but i mean they'd the decay rate on some of that atomic stuff is hundreds of years. Somewhere I had a list here, and I haven't, I'm often looking for it and I can't find it, whether I threw it out, of all the elements that go up to make an atomic bomb, and there's a great string of them that high, and all the decay rates on those certain things. It's amazing. Some of them go to a 1,000 years. 
before they're safe. It's a lot of so guys. In, in an atomic blast, there's all the elements. Some of them are gone in a split second, some of them two minutes, some half an hour, some hour, some day, some a month, some six months, five years, 20 years, and never. Mm. So no one wants to talk about the atomic bombs on Japan because it's just a hot potato and they don't want to scare people. Mm. Simple as that. A lot similar to Agent Orange in, Viet in the Vietnam War where a lot of blokes just yeah. didn't. Um, so I've, I've jumped ahead a little bit. Talk to me about when you flew over, when you got ready to go to Japan, your trip to Japan and uh, what that was like. I, I assume that was probably your first time uh, going overseas at that point? Yeah, it's the first time I went overseas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we left Mascot at 9 o'clock at night in a uh, Lancaster bomber, which we had three of them uh, we used for mail plane because they were reliable and they carried no, oh, something about 20 troops full of mail and equipment and so forth, a very versatile aircraft uh, operated by the RAAF. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, about, uh, no, there was no bed. She just slept back into a harness and tried to sleep. And uh, we had a bit of a drama on the way over the first night, about half past three in the morning. We heard a loud bang noise and uh, the plane shook a little bit and we, that time we woke up and, oh, nothing happened, we're still flying. So, OK, when it gets to Darwin, just after daylight the next morning, what had happened through the night, uh, I don't know. Well, we always flew at 12 to 14,000 feet because above that you need pressurisation and the bombers weren't equipped for that sort of thing. What had happened, hard to believe this, but the plane hit a migrating eagle and smashed the, the pilot's windscreen. So that was all right. We stood there for a day until they... Uh, wasn't a night. Yeah, one night we stayed there. And the next day we're flying along nicely and, of course, in those days it was, was Darwin, Manila, Japan. And these days... You get in the plane, have a bit of a snooze and a drink of coffee and you're up there. But those days were three days, right? So we get to coming into Manila. Um, oh, that's right. I heard a bit of a noise and a bang and I smelt some smoke. One engine stopped. Oh, this is nice. So anyway, we had three more to bring us into. <laughs> it was a bit of excitement. <laughs> so, yeah, and then we stayed in Manila for two days till they brought a replacement motor back from somewhere probably from Japan. I know, I, don't, I really don't know. I never found out where they brought that motor from. <laughs> so it took three days to get to Japan. But the thing I remember mostly was, was the most beautiful clouds I'd never seen before in the tropics. And you think, well, that's a wonderful creation. That is, nobody can... It's unbelievable, the cloud formations and so forth. And, of course, it was one of the mountains there. The volcano was... Uh, we didn't fly too close to that, of course. Uh, when when we landed in Japan, we were only in our summer uniforms and I saw these fellows coming up to the window looking in the plane and they got caps on and woolen jackets and all huddled up. It was the middle of winter, wasn't it? The place was covered in snow. We didn't have any winter gear. So <laughs> the next couple of days, I think we had four blankets on at night to survive. And then they issued us with all these woolies and all this... Uh, overseas gear, nice overcoats and stuff, which we didn't have before. So it was a bit of a thrill for a young airman. <laughs> yeah. 
So what was your role in Japan uh, and as part, of, as part of the Air Force? Well, because I didn't have the education, never had a chance to, living in the bush, uh, was too, I had two cousins and they, they went to high school because they lived near a high school. I couldn't because I lived in the bush. And my family was that poor, they couldn't pay the bus fare to take me to Lismore High School to get a better education. So I went, I mean, the only education I had was ground crew. I went in as uh, storeman and equipment. Uh, all purchase of equipment from all directions and handling of gear and exchange of products, anything to do with gear and equipment, that was my job. Okay, so you would designate supplies to go here and there yeah, and this. Yeah, and... Yeah. All right. You mentioned to me that you at one point um, had uh, special duties, I think you referred. Yeah, fortunately, I, I. Yeah, well, I don't know how they've done their selection, but anyway, yeah, well, I had uh, six weeks on uh, special duties in Tokyo. Uh, part of it, well, I've done. Uh, duty on the Emperor's Palace. Uh, there's 13 guard posts around the Emperor's Palace. Mainly well, they were 24-hour <coughs> guards to make sure that, the, well, the Emperor was our prisoner. He was locked up in the big house on the hill, as we used to call it. <laughs> uh, but he had his own entrance, which was number one. Well, I, I done duty on number three was my post there. Uh, over a period of six weeks, we had... Canadian legation, British legation, Australia House, and two others which I can't think of, but we had to do 24-hour guard on uh, because there was a lot of insurrection at that time. The business in Korea was stirring up and there was uh, all these North Koreans, they were going to take over Japan and they had everything ready to do it too, but we were on 24-hour guard all the time yes, because... Well, I'm glad they didn't come over because <laughs> we were <laughs> we didn't have much to defend ourselves, really. Uh, the 5th Cavalry over there, and that's the Yanks, but we never mixed up with the Yanks. Keep away from the Yanks because they only mean trouble anyway. Why is that? Are they just a rowdy group? Oh, you know, soldiers get together and they fight one another. Yeah, OK. The Yanks... Uh, I really don't like them, never did much. They're too self-opinionated, to my knowledge. <laughs> they think they own the world, you know. Like I went, went to a dancing party in, in Tokyo one night. I was on leave and we thought, oh, we'll go to this dance, you know. And I had a couple of dances with this girl and then the yank come over and sort of pushed me aside and said, oh, I won't repeat what he said or what I said, but <laughs> I just moved aside and gave him back his girlfriend. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Some things you tried to forget. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Now, the Yanks and Aussies didn't get on together because, uh, yeah, there's ladies present. Oh, I might be able to... Yeah, always a few fights. Um, so what was, what was the palace like? Was it an impressive building? Yeah, well, of course, even though we guarded, that was we weren't allowed to go any closer to the garden, to the to the palace. Oh, it's a beautiful building, yeah. I guess it's still full maintained, and uh, we've got a new emperor now, I think. But when I was there, the emperor was a little boy, the one that's just been displaced. I just can't think of his name. And the old emperor died, and this fellow 
gives emperor for many years, but uh, uh, no, mainly the Japanese really didn't want the war. It's only the warlords and the, the cruel system that they worked under, fanatical. Uh, the Chinese these days are the same. But the, the, the Japanese were gentlemen soldiers compared to the Chinese. I won't go into it, but I had a, a friend who fought with the Chinese in Vietnam and some of the things he told me I, I just wouldn't like to repeat. Mm. But, uh, no, the Chinese, I, I just can't wear them. No, they're... they're All I hope is that as events come that the hand of the Lord will come out and stop something what's going on up there, mm. you know. So what was, what was it like going to a country that Australia had been at war with, that your friends that, your friends you said had fought with the Japanese and some didn't return up the islands there, and now you're there in their country. What was that? Was there animosity or was there some um, you saw the destruction and felt sorry or how did you... Well, through. let's put it this way. All the people of military age were dead anyway, most of them. Uh, the place was full of old ladies, old men and children. You don't see many blokes around at all. And I used to think, where's all these guys? And suddenly realised they were so depleted. You know, they ended up fighting on the streets uh, in the early part of it. And it's just... Uh, there wasn't many men around. We had a few working on the, on the unit. Uh, Used to, a truck goes into town every morning, two trucks actually, and done a run around the bus stops and picked up, bring loads of people in and they do all the slushy work around the place, cleaning and kitchen and scrubby and peeling spuds in the mess and all that sort of stuff uh, because we didn't have the crew. I don't know how they'd... I don't think how they'd been able to carry on without the Japanese labour. And, of course, they had nothing... And to get a meal and a few dollars in their pocket was like winning the Opera House Lottery to them. So, you know, because they were selected people to do the jobs um, and they done it very well, all, all the slushy work, yeah. Heavy loads to be lifted, just clap, clap. A few, a few Japanese would come and give you a hand with everything. <laughs> so, we, we treated them with respect and yeah. I think that's what they soon learned, you know. So the, the occupation force, was their role to sort of clean up and um, make sure there's order and there's no further uh, uprising or...? or uh... <sighs> Yeah, well, one of the major jobs first up was the disposal of ammunition and stuff. Okay, yeah. I mean, just outside our window, there was a channel came up and I could count six or eight submarines there, miniature submarines. They had to be all maintained and looked after and all that sort of stuff. Well, I just threw a few bombs in there and all the big guns, they just <laughs> threw a hand grenade down the barrel. <laughs> and now what happens then, of course... It disfigures the lines where the shell come out. They couldn't use them again. So the demolition was a big part before I got there, the okay. three years before I got there. Uh, the demolition of Army Naval stores. <coughs> In Keary Bay, we used to get a... Um, on a weekend sometime, we'd, go, we'd have a PT boat. Uh, they used to run a bit of a roster and I remember it was my turn so about eight of us got on this PT boat with a couple of sailors 
and we'd go up cruising up in the islands and that to see what was there. And ships sunk with just the uh, the tops of the mast sticking out of the water. And if you go into Kiri Harbour in those days, you had to have somebody standing up on the front of the boat saying, go left, skipper, go right, skipper, go left, because funnels and stuff sticking up out of the water and you didn't want to crash into them. Mm. So really the Japanese Navy was at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, OK. <laughs> um. Did your time there change your perception of the Japanese at all? Oh, yeah, we soon realised that, uh, you know, well, they, <laughs> when we first went there, the kids would run away from you. And I remember we, we hired a boat one Sunday and we went out to one of the islands and we had our... <clears throat> Previous to that, we called into the mess and said, right, we want uh, so many bottles of beer and so many uh, sandwiches and so much this and that, and that, load the ship up with this stuff and we'd go for a tour around the inland sea. And we got to this little island and uh, we had the binoculars and you could see the people walking around the streets and what have you. And by the time we got there, you wouldn't see one living soul, not a soul. You'd think, well, that's strange, where the hell are they? You walk past the house and there's a kettle on the stove boiling over with water, so they're not far away, are they? You know, and so that was all right. Walk back the ships and then next thing you see the little children coming out, you know, and, of course, some of us could say a couple of words in Japanese and even some of the kids could say a couple of words, you know, like presento. When they want you to give them something, they put their hand out and say presento, you know, chocolate, chewing gum and all this sort of stuff. They'd never seen white people before, and I knew a girl, she was an interpreter, and when I went back, I said to her, just what I said to you, how come they're so scared? They, they were up in the hills, they were deserted. She said, we were told that all Australians are, are black and don't get near them because they'll cut your throats. So that instilled in them enough trouble to get out of town <laughs> when we went there, but it wasn't that. They soon... See, Japan was very isolated. I mean, there's hundreds of islands and a lot of them didn't have real contact with the real world. They were backward. They weren't up to date with modern things and they didn't have any restrict they were restrictions on radios. They weren't allowed to do this and weren't allowed to do that, like Nazi Germany. And they weren't educated and they thought we are out there to shoot them all, you know. We didn't even have our rifles with us. All we had was a box of apples and some lollies to give <laughs> to the kids. So as soon as you start giving the kids, they come out, kids, kids, I haven't got enough lollies for them, you know. <laughs> Did they soon realise that it... We were friendly. Yes. Not enemies. Mm. Yeah, it's only the warmongers. The same, same old story in history over again. It's the warmongers that caused the trouble, mm. you know. Mm. Mm. Did you have, did you have relatives that served uh, in the war? I had an uncle who served in, the, the, yeah, Uncle Horace. He was in the navy. Singapore. Hmm? Oh, my granddad, yeah, and way back in the turn of the century, he served in the navy, and of course his son, Uncle Horace, he served in the navy too. He was on the uh, HMAS Australia when it sunk that. German ship, the Emden. Okay. Yeah. So there's always been some military people somewhere down the line. <laughs> Have you? Do you know the story about the um, the Indianapolis? 
the American heavy cruiser. There's... Uh, I know the name, but I'm just trying to recall it. It was one of the ships that had components for the, the first atomic bomb for Hiroshima, and it had to go drop it off in the Pacific somewhere for the bomb to be assembled. Oh, yeah. And it was hit once it dropped off the components, it went back, I think, back to the Philippines yeah, somewhere. Yeah, I've heard about that story. And the it was hit by two um, Japanese... Um, Suiciders? No, uh, submarines. Um, oh, yeah. I've got terminology. Anyway, and it, it sunk in the middle of the night, but it was, I think, the... It's on record for the largest mass shark attack in history. It, it was um, it was a probably the worst place to be <laughs> at any time in history. I think uh, hundreds of sailors died in the first 15 minutes. Ships sunk. Um, you know, men burned from the oil on the water. And then for the next week, there was just shark attack after shark attack. We were hundreds of boys. And they all huddled together, and sharks would pick them off, and they would get, they would give up. Half of them would give up and just swim out and be taken. It was, uh, yeah, it's quite. Terrible, a, yeah. It's one of those little stories in the larger scheme of uh, the massive World War Two. That, um, yeah, it's terrible, but um, yeah, it, it came to mind when I was preparing for you know, Japan and the bombs and this interview. But yeah, t terrible story. Um, yeah, I think yeah. there's still a few survivors today. One or two, not many. Phew. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, you never went to Nagasaki. You stayed around Hiroshima area and Tokyo? Yeah, well, see, I never moved anywhere unless you had a leave pass because there was too many MPs running around the place checking up on where you, who are you, where you're going, what are you doing sort of thing. Yeah, okay. So you didn't go anywhere. No, I never went to Nagasaki. No. So when you came home from Japan um, and you spoke to your friends and family and told them what you saw, was it a shock to them to realise the, actually what those bombs were and, and what they had done? I mean, we're talking um, 20,000 soldiers died in Hiroshima and over 100,000 civilians and Nagasaki was even worse. Nagasaki was, I think, uh, 80,000 civilians in uh, yeah, did they did they realise sort of what was going on? Well, I don't remember having many conversations, but nobody wanted to talk about the war, and they wasn't really interested in it. It would well, because it'd been just a few years of just a slog and just a lot of people dealing with heartache, and they just wanted to move on. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and uh, I'll never forget uh, when I came came back and. Uh, this friend of mine I met over in Japan, he uh, lived in Sydney and he came come home about three months before me and he said, oh, when you come home, come and see us and stay at our place. And I thought, oh, gee, this is an invitation. So he lived at Dover Heights. Uh, <clears throat> that's up above Bondi. It's a beautiful spot. Uh, so we, he said, oh, look... We, and his father was an old digger from the First War, and he said, you know, you boys should join the RSL. So, all right, we rolled up to uh, <coughs> Bondi Junction, RSL branch, 
went in for an interview and the, <laughs> the bloke said, you blokes are a bunch of cowboys. You never went anywhere, you never done anything. Get out of here. That was his words. So we left. I wanted to join the RSL and I thought, oh, you know, that's all right. And because they thought that's what they looked down upon, the forgot they call them the forgotten force. Nobody wanted to know them. They still call it <coughs> forgotten force today. And, oh, yeah, you, you blokes go, oh, get out of here, sort of thing, you know. Oh, yeah, so all right. I said, well, that's the way you go. So I never bothered thinking about joining the RSL for about the next 20 years. And at that time, they welcomed us with, with open arms. You know why? Because they're getting short of troops. That's mm. why. And then they decided, oh, yeah, these folks, uh, yeah. Oh, they used to call us conscripts and everything. And I wasn't a conscript, I was a volunteer. Mm. So then they realised, oh, no, you know, we'll have to soften up a bit on them. Uh, we can't treat them too bad. We might need them in the future. So then they sort of come back and, oh, yeah, come and join us, come and join us. So that's when I, I joined the RAF Association in Sydney. <laughs> but it's funny how they, yeah, schoolboys said we didn't, didn't go anywhere and didn't do anything. Oh, yeah, right right. It wasn't exactly a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> were, um, were there ever any close calls? Any any dangerous situations? Perhaps not in combat, but uh, your your time and uh, the only really one I can think of when I was on uh, special duties in Tokyo for two months was uh, what's that day they call January, March, April. Uh, I just can't think of the name of the day. Uh, they feared rights because. Um, I was on guard duty, I forget, one of the embassies or something, and come home after doing a 12-hour shift, had a shower, got into bed, trying to sleep. Next thing, the orderly officer comes in with his torch. Get up, boys, get up, get dressed. They don't, they, typical military, don't tell you what for or where you're going because you're not allowed to ask questions anyway, you just do it. So I entered the trucks and away we went and I went to... Asakusa is a suburb of Tokyo. It's the overseas OTC, Overseas Telecation Community. The cable comes from wherever, undersea, up into Japan, and that was the main... It's not like it is these days. You pick up a phone, you can talk to the King of England sort of thing, but those days it was a little bit different. So, And the story was they were going to blow the place up. So, uh, yeah, well, there was two truckloads of us. We were on 24-hour duty there. Uh, up on the roof with a box of ammunition and got your rifle and the, the orders are, any heads come over the, over the top, pop them off. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, we had, it was a flat roof place. Yeah. Overseas telecommunications throughout the world, all the headquarters, everything comes in and out there, very vital base, mm. but that's what they wanted, mm. the terrorists. But I guess they come up the street and take a look at us and say, I won't go in there, I'll get my head shot off. So we were up on the top walking around, patrolling around with our rifles and ammunition in case we get an ambush. That's the nearest I came to real action over there. Mm, mm. It was hairy enough. Yeah, yeah. Did, was there a part of you that, were you relieved you never had to be put in that situation or was there a part of you as a young man that... 
wish that you did see some sort of... Well, you're of trying for it, but you hope you never get there. Yeah, okay. Simple. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fortunately, I didn't. Yeah. Did, did you have any um, uh, friends that you served with or guys that you knew that went on to um, serve in the Korean War? No. No, I didn't, but I think it was... 67 Battalion, I think, uh, went to Korea, but they changed. As the circumstances with the military move around, they get different designations. I think it was 67 Battalion, I think, top of my head. They became some regiment or something. I can never understand the Army. The Air Force, I knew it backwards, but the Army, I can't understand what these, mm. all the different positions are yeah. where they fit in. Mm. I know what a sergeant is and a corporal, but then you get up lieutenant journal, lieutenant curve first class and all. It's a maze. <laughs> what, what about the, um, now, a decade later, so when the Vietnam started coming into the scene, um, did you ever consider putting your hat back in or...? Um, yeah, well, see, I was a volunteer in the first place. Yes. <coughs> if I was a conscript, it would be different. When I started work at Shell in 1960, about that, the Vietnam War started up and uh, I met a couple of blokes there, but they'd, they'd volunteered to go there. But I, I thought I was going to get a call up to go, but then because I was a volunteer, if I was a conscript, I probably would have went to Korea. Mm. But because I was a volunteer and I'd had my service overseas, I missed out. I was going to go anyway. But that time I just got married. Mm. Who would want to go to war when you've got wife and kids hanging yeah, of around? of course. Mm. Of course. Of course. Anyway. Are there lessons, Alan, that over the years that you've learnt, ones that come to mind that you can share with me, a, a young man that's just stepping into uh, adulthood? Yeah, well, the main thing about wars is nobody wants war, uh, but it's those stupid generals and what have you is up the front and pull the strings and you can't do anything about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's just not human to have wars of one another. You're on this earth to be peaceful and love one another and give in to one another and help one another. The same is going on in China now. I mean, it's, every time you put the TV on, you see these Chinese looking around with their rifles. And admittedly, their 110% equipment is perfect and that, but what are they doing? They're just pulling the wool over the eyes of people. Oh, we've got to do this and we've got to do that. There's peaceful ways of without war. It should never be wars. should never be. no occasion for it. I mean, uh, it's all right to say, oh, yeah, the Chinese are running out of ground. They've got enough... enough uh, haven't got enough land and that to feed the people and that, yeah, well, why start a war over that? Sure, you can get on with peaceful negotiations with with other countries. This this is crazy, Tim. I mean, it's there's been wars and rumours of wars ever since Adam was in Jerusalem, as they say. <laughs> but it's just part of human nature. They seem to be always pushing one another around. It's not necessary... It's only the higher up the generals and general people up there, the idiots with no brains that want wars. Anyone with half a brain, what do you want to cut your neighbour's throat for? Mm. You know, 
it, it, there might be a, there would be a lot less conflict if the men that made those decisions had to serve in the front. If those politicians had to serve in the front, I'm sure there'd be a they lot back less in their conflict. bunkers giving orders. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Everybody loses in a war. Everybody. Just an utter waste. You know, it reminds me of Kiri Harbour when we first went in there. All the ships sunk and all you can see is the mast sticking out of the water. Ships lying on their side, some upside down. Uh, the destruction in Hiroshima is unbelievable. You'd have to see it. All, all, all we've got these days is pictures, but to be there is something else. Is there something that stuck, stayed with you? <laughs> Never leave you. Mm. <laughs> Particularly the smell of the honey carts. The honey cards. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's another story. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, growing up in a time a lot different than now, different hardships and uh, technology that's completely different, uh, not like today. And uh, Do you have any advice for the generation that I'm in? Well... What are we missing? <laughs> I'd, I'd think... I think you'd really be lost without the Christian beliefs. People say, oh, the Bible's been around for thousands of years. Yeah, so's Satan. Mm. You know? mm. He's been around from day one mm. too. Uh, just try and learn the truth, keep with the truth. And when you have a problem, just don't make hasty decisions. Work it out. And if you can't work it out, try your local pastor. He might be able to help you. Or somebody who's been through it and had that experience because, uh, yeah, it's funny times that we live in. Yeah. I don't know if I could add to that. No, that, that's perfect. Thank you for sitting down and taking time to talk to me. And I really appreciate this. This is it's a big honour for me to speak to you today. Thank you. It's a right pleasure. I'm on the right <laughs> so that that was when I interviewed my father. I heard a lot of things I hadn't heard yeah, either. And because Alan never opened up to me about his service in the war. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I learned a lot. No, this is uh, this is history, and, and it's it's experiences and stories like this that shouldn't be lost. Mm. Uh, that shouldn't be lost. I get get upset at the thought of it, and so while I'm young and while I can and. As long as um, my elders are willing, I, um, these are things that shouldn't be lost. I mean, how many people can say that they ex saw Hiroshima after the, the bombs? And uh, um, like I said, there's a, not many blokes left, and that's valuable. Yeah, well, I think I said earlier, there's, uh, I think it's down to 22 or 18, including me. There's a list somewhere. I don't know I displaced this list somewhere. Uh, I only received it in a couple of weeks ago. I cited it. Who's left? There's about three Navy blokes and about 18 or 20 mm. Air Force. And I don't think there's any Army guys left. Mm. See, I was fairly young when I went there. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the blokes were, say, five years older than me. They were there two years. So they, if they were alive today, they'd be over 100. Mm. So they're all gone. And now, after all that, I got four, three glorious little Japanese 
<laughs> grandchildren. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Have you seen them at all? <laughs> yes. Yes. Well behaved. They're not too rowdy. <laughs> <laughs> Little monkeys, yeah. <laughs>